the text with us this morning. We will be in Amos chapter 8, right? So if you just let your Bible fall open, it probably isn't going to go to Amos. You're going to have to look for it a little bit. So Amos is in the Minor Prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew, you go back to your left. We've been working our way through Amos now for the last couple months. Um, Amos, remember, um, is a minor prophet. Minor simply meaning that it's the group of books at the end of the Old Testament that are shorter, not of less significance. Um, Amos is a lay guy. He was not a professional prophet. And in in chapter 1, we are told that the Lord gave him some visions and and called him to go and to minister. Um, At this point in Israel's history, Israel has divided into two nations. And so of the original 12 tribes, 10 have broken off in the north under Jeroboam for the last 200 years. And the two southern tribes are now known as Judah. Um, Amos is from the south. He is ministering specifically to the north, roughly in the years probably 760 to 755 B.C. Um, And this is in a glorious age of Israel's history, at least in regards to success, right? Military is strong. um, Economics are strong. Boundaries are as wide as they've been, except under David and Solomon's reign. Um, And there's been relative peace in the region. Uh, And so what has happened is it's really Israel's silver age. Um, Outside of David and Solomon's era, this is the, the best that Israel has had it. And so Amos's message was a hard one for them to hear, a hard pill for them to swallow, because he comes in with this message of God is not pleased, and God is coming for us. And it's, it's a prophetic book, it's a judgment book um, with a lot of poetry, um, a lot of uh, music, kind of songs of doom woven throughout it, oracles, all of these things that are really pretty far-fetched in our culture, we're far removed from. And yet what we've seen is as we've done the work to kind of pull back the layers over the last couple months that that Amos has actually had a lot to reveal to us, a lot to teach us um, about the state of the church now, um, what what God's expectation is on us now. But the last two months have also been heavy. And I've heard this from so many of you. I have felt it myself, right? As we have sat under this book where we have seen God's justice, His holiness, His expectation, and then the people's failure to live this way, that there has just been kind of a cloud that has settled over us. Um, and we've, we went into that knowing that would happen, asking the Lord to do it, and yet at the same time, I'm feeling the, the constant pressure and tension to want to kind of poke it, right, to burst it. Because there's a, a part of us that what we want is if we're honest, we love, we don't mind a hard sermon every once in a while, a hard text a hard concept, but we want it to be wrapped up with a bow at the end, by the end of the sermon, and then we're going to move on. And what Amos has done is it's kind of forced us just to sit in some heavy um, gravity, right? Some some tones um, has just been been difficult and weighty. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to wrap Amos up. We're going to do chapter 8 and chapter 9 and conclude Amos this morning. So what we're going to see are the last two visions that Amos has given, um, as well as the conclusion to the letter. Um, Kind of just a reminder before we look at Amos 8, the question that we've just let kind of hang has been this, who could stand against this God? Right? That is, we've seen the Lion of Judah roaring, ferocious, upset with the way his people have not reflected his image correctly. 
right? And we have seen that when he says, look, I'm coming and it's not going to be positive. My presence is not going to be for your benefit. I'm going to bring judgment. That the question we've asked is who could stand before this God? And we know on this side of the cross that Jesus has, right? But we've wanted to intentionally kind of to sit in this. And so let's pick up in Amos 8, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read this in pieces. Verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel, and I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they're thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, who bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the, the shaft of the wheat." The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. We're going to stop there for a moment. So here's what we have going on. Amos gets his fourth vision. And so, so far in chapter 7, the first three, remember he saw locusts coming in and wiping out the harvest at the end when there was drought coming, so there was no more harvest to be had. Famine would have entered. We saw a vision of fire. And then we saw a vision um, of a plumb line of God saying, look, I gave you everything you needed when I brought you out of um, Egypt. You had the law, you had me, you had redemption, you had everything you needed. The law was, the wall was plumb, it was square, it was right. And now you've had your own time, and I'm about to put the plumb line back on it to see where it's at. And what we saw was that the wall was not plumb, that they have not rightly followed, trusted, or reflected God's image or His character. So this fourth vision that he has is he just shows Amos uh, an item, And it's a basket of of ripe fruit. And what's going on here in the Hebrew is there's a a play on words. That the word for fruit and the word for end sound the same, look the same, right? It's a word play. And what he's saying is you see this basket of fruit? The end is here. It's here. There, There is no more time for the fruit. You are ripe for judgment. And so this vision was one of just of, of punch and of, of power. That you are ripe for judgment. The end is here. The hour is, a, is at hand. It's imminent. And so I want you to look at the scene then that they begin to describe. He's like, I'm coming. The day of the Lord is happening and I'm going to destroy you. Look at verse 3. The songs of the temple, so their worship have not, are no longer songs of worship, but they are wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. And then he just paints this scene, right, of people walking around and dead bodies are just piled up everywhere. It's a really kind of a, 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 horror, a horror scene. Because the only reason that there would be dead bodies piled up is if there's too many to deal with. Right, this isn't like, hey, I just didn't want to deal with it today, so we let them stack up. This is a scene of everyone's dying. And there's no one left to bury the dead. 
and they're walking through, and there's this conversation happening. You remember a couple chapters ago where they're walking through the houses looking for survivors, and, and someone says, is there anyone in there? And one survivor goes, hush, God may hear us. Be silent. We know what he's here for. The same thing is happening here where he goes, the, the people are walking around going, there are so many dead bodies, they're thrown everywhere, and they're like, be quiet before we're added to the pile. This is a, a, a ugly, harsh scene. But he immediately goes into, and he just kind of recaps all of Amos for us, and he tells them why. Look at verse 4. Why are there going to be dead bodies everywhere? Why are you going to sing wailings? Why am I coming for you? Because you trample on the needy. You bring the poor of the land to an end. And so then he describes their worship. Look, he says, when the new moon, in verse 5, is happening, that's, that's a celebration, right? And we see the Sabbath is mentioned as well. So they're showing up in church, right? They're showing up for worship, sitting there, looking from all outward appearances as they are being obedient. And in their hearts, here's what they're saying. When can this be over so that we can make money? so that we can do what it is we really want to do. And so commerce would stop on religious holidays and on the Sabbath. And they're going, here's what we want. We want to sell grain. You're like, hey, is that a bad thing to want to do your job? But listen, that we make make the ephah small and the shekel great. So the ephah was a basket that they would use. And so you would come in and you would buy an ephah of grain. And so they would fill it up and then they would have the shekel that they would set on the other side. Right? And now that that's how much you would pay. So here's what they're doing. They're making the weight heavier. And they were lining the basket so that it looked like an ephah, but it was actually you were getting less. So what was happening is you were spending more to get less. And they were taking advantage of the needy and the poor who barely had enough to pay for to buy anyway. And now they're making sure we're not going to sell you at, at, at the right price. We're not going to give you more. We're going to take from you. You're going to get less than you're supposed to have and pay more for it. And so he's like, you're sitting in worship supposed to be honoring me. And what you're thinking is, is how can I get them? How can I, how can I get more from them? How can I have more injustice? How can I take more from those who have nothing? He's like, and these are your brothers and sisters. And you deal deceitfully in verse 5 with false balances that you can buy the poor for silver. He's like, you you're literally have become slave traders. The needy for a pair of sandals. And then he says, and then you sell them the trash wheat. And so this idea here is that they've, they've worked all day, they're selling wheat, and his stuff has fallen on the floors. The, the last little bits, the remnants, that really wouldn't be good for making bread. They're sweeping that up, and then they're selling that to the poor. So they're getting a lower quality, less amount for more money. He's like, this is who you've become. This is simply one example of the fact that you are outwardly obedient so that you can check off the boxes. Showed up, sang the song, did the thing. Now God, give me what I want, and I'm going to deal with injustice towards my brothers and sisters. And he's saying, but when you were helpless... When you were needy, when you were hopeless, when you were slaves in Egypt, when you had no one to rescue you, and you're you're groaning, you cried out for me, what did I do? I rescued you. I brought you out, and I gave you a land, and a hope, and a future, and myself. And here you are, forgetting that that's what God's character is like, forgetting justice and righteousness, and you are saying that that's who we are, and you are doing the exact opposite of it. 
He's like, you want to know why there are going to be bodies piled up? That's why. That's why. Amos is continuing to just hit hard. Because listen, they're sitting in, in services before a God who has given himself to them. He has given them revelation. He has shown himself through miracles and power and might and rescue and the law and the covenant and his word. He has given himself to them and they have taken it for granted. And now their concern is for security, for peace, for money, for military might, for wealth, by any means necessary. They are faking obedience and taking God for granted. And so then we see, he says, here's what's going to happen. Verse 8, he starts to talk about an earthquake. And you will remember that in Amos 1, Amos, as he's putting this together, it says, I did all of this two years before the earthquake. Look at how God describes this. Right? They would have been literally singing in church, in, in, in the sanctuaries, about God the Creator. Right, saying these things about him. And then listen to verse 8. Shall not the land tremble on this account because of what you've done? And everyone mourn who dwells in it. And all of it, meaning all of the land, is going to rise like the Nile and be tossed to and fro and sink again. So he says, you remember that big river that you saw? I'm going to shake the land like a rug. And it's going to bounce to and fro and quake. And you're going to see who's in control. You're going to see who has power. You're going to see who's sovereign. Right? Like, there's something about nature that is just a reminder that God is in control. Right? There's something divine, it seems like, about hell. Right? That you're just like, it's coming from the sky and it can kill me. That we, even though we don't really have earthquakes here, when, when the ground shakes, because we just kind of get used to the ground being stable, right? That you're just reminded, I'm not in control of this. But there is one who is. And so he continues. Let's, let's pick up in verse 9. We're going to read a few more verses. And on that day, declares the Lord God. So he's talking about this earthquake. I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all of your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the morning for an only sun. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they will not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. And so he goes from verse 8, talking about an earthquake, to verse 9, an eclipse. Right, saying, I'm just going to, I'm going to do these things in nature that are going to gain your attention. And then he just shows there will be no hope, right? Like, all is lost. I'm going to turn your feast into mornings. Your songs are now laments. And he, look at verse uh, 10. I will make it like the morning for an only son. The morning of an only son is saying like our, our line is lost. Our legacy is lost. Our heritage is lost. There will be nothing passed down. This was a huge cultural issue. And he's saying, so Israel as a nation, what you're going to feel like is that all hope is gone. There's nothing to be passed on any longer. 
This is not a, a slap on the wrist. This is an annihilation that God is bringing. And he says, and you're young and you're virile, the lovely virgins and the young men, they will faint for thirst. They will run to and fro and they will find not what they're looking for. And you notice what he says is going to happen? You're going to have a famine. He says, it's not going to be like the famines I've sent in the past that didn't get your attention of food or droughts. It's going to be a famine for the Word of God. You have despised my word. Remember, Amos has told us multiple times that they have tried to shut up the prophets. They didn't want to hear from God any longer. That Amaziah in chapter 7, the priest, has told Amos, go away, we don't want to hear this anymore. You have despised the word of God. You have taken it for granted. You have taken his revelation for granted and ignored it long enough. And so it's going to go away. And you won't have it anymore. And then you're going to run to and fro all over the world going, we want to have God, we want to hear from God, and he will be inaccessible to you. And you will be desperate for it. And so he's saying the young are running around going, why can't we hear from God anymore? And he says, because of judgment. And so the scene in chapter 8 continues kind of just the, the thematic element of Amos, of just terror, of horror, of judgment, of pain, of a miserable, hopeless situation. Because they have taken him for granted and they have sinned against his name. Let's pick up in verse in chapter 9 now. We're going to see the fifth vision. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And all those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up into heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search for them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord of God, he who touches the earth and melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, who has and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Ker. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. So here's the fifth vision, right? We, in chapter 7, we saw the third one, which was God with a plumb line in his hand looking at a wall. And in, in verse 1, you could also read this, I saw the Lord standing beside, or you could say, I saw him standing on. That he's standing on the wall, showing it's out of plumb, showing that judgment is, is right and justified because they haven't followed and trusted him. And then he begins to command. And you almost see him as a general saying, bring it down. 
and the people have gathered in false worship to their false religion and their false God, thinking they know who God is, assuming they know who God is, and it's been wrong, and they haven't rightly reflected his image. And so he's standing there on it, the wall that is out of plumb, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. Shatter them on the heads of the people. Those who are left, I will kill, right? He just begins to dictate, and people are destroyed. And Amos is watching this scene, saying, this is, this is us. Like, I'm telling you, this is what God is wanting to do, and you don't think it will happen. How do we know? Look at verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Remember, the people of God have assumed, because of their unique relationship with God, that they were untouchable, that God would not bring judgment or discipline upon them. And they thought that they were untouchable because they had been pulled out of Egypt via the Exodus, right? It was this great story of redemption. And they're looking back saying, God, you brought us out. You gave us all these things. You rescued us. We're good. You won't touch us. They have completely misunderstood the intent. They have broken his covenant. And he reminds them of this. Look at verse 7. Are you not like the Cushites to me? Oh, people of Israel, right? He's saying, are you not like these other nations? Which would have offended them because they thought they were unique and special completely. He goes, did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt? And they would have gladly said, yes, you did, right? That's why we're unique. That's why we're special. He goes, but I also brought the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr. What he's saying is other people have been exiled. Other people have been brought into a new homeland. And I'm the one who did it. I'm directing all of this. I'm doing all of this. And so the exodus itself is not why you're unique. The exodus itself is not why you're special. The reason you were is because I gave you me. I didn't just bring you out of a place and give you a land. I gave you me. I gave you the law. I gave you revelation. I gave you myself. And you have broken that covenant. You haven't wanted it. And because of that, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to escape. Look, he says, if you, di- if you dig into the ground, I'm going to scoop you out. You try to get into heavens, I'm going to knock you out. Right? You want to get on top of Mount Carmel, the highest place in the area, I'll find you. You want to go to the bottom of the ocean, I'll find you. Jeremiah 23, 24 says it this way. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Here's what he's telling them. You thought in worship that you could show up and be obedient, air quotes, because you were doing the right thing. And in your heart, you were far from me. You weren't hiding. I saw it. In, in the marketplace, with your unfair scales that look like you're showing balance, I knew what you were doing. You weren't hiding from me. So he goes, it doesn't matter where you go, what you think, what you do. I see you and I know. Church, this is a really good reminder for us. Right? That we would not think, hey, the most important thing is I've fooled y'all into thinking that I'm a good believer, a good Christian. They don't know what I'm doing. Look, I show up every Sunday. God says we can't hide from him. He knows our thoughts, our desires, our longings. There's no place we can go. There's no place that's secret. And he says, I've I've seen and I know, and you have fallen short. He tells them in verse 7, the uniqueness was not your rescue. It was that I had given you myself. 
Verse 10, they have been presuming upon God and arrogant, thinking He would not touch them. But He leaves some seeds of hope in chapter 9. Verse 8 at the end, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Look at verse 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve. Right? So he's, he's talking about like, like sifting. And he's like, I'm going to put you in there and I'm shaking. And he says, all the pebbles are going to stay in there and judgment's going to come. But the remnant that was righteous, the remnant that has trusted and followed me, the remnant that has like reflected my image and my glory the way that I've wanted, it's going to fall through. Now listen, you're still going to have some judgment because you're going to go into exile. But I'm going to save a portion of you. But the rest of you, none of those pebbles are escaping. You're not getting away from this. Listen, chapter 8 and the first 10 verses of chapter 9 do a great job of encapsulating where we've been in Amos. And so if this is one of your first messages in Amos, and you're like, good grief, <laughs> right? This is heavy. This is painful. Why would you sit here for two months? Yeah, that's, this is, that's what we've done. Amos, up to this point, feels hopeless. It feels dark. It feels weighty. It feels heavy. And if we're quite honest, it feels gospelless. Because it's just one thing after another of God bringing judgment. But in fact, we're going to see with just a handful of verses left that in Amos we can see the totality of the, the, the story of God. Let's read verse 11 and finish chapter 9 of Amos. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes shall overtake him who sows the seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. So church, verse 10 ends with the people arrogant and presuming upon God. And here's what happens. In two years, the earthquake happens. And within a generation, exile happens as they are wiped out by Assyria. What Amos has said would happen in Amos happens. But then he tacks on at the end this bit of hope. This remnant is going to see a reversal. And so he says, I will raise up in verse 11, the booth of David. So the booth was, there was a feast of booths. And at the end of the year, it was like the end gathering, the harvest festival where they're celebrating, God, look at all that you've given us this year. You have provided once again. And in it for generations, what they would do is they would build little booths like tents to remember that they were once a people in the wilderness, that God had rescued them from humble beginnings. And listen to what God is saying. He's like, I'm going to raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and I'm going to repair it. Here's what he's saying. The harvest that you're getting right now is a harvest of judgment, of ripe fruit that's not what you were looking for. But the simplicity, the humbleness of where you came from, 
It's going to come back. How do we know this? Because Jesus comes from Bethlehem. Not Jerusalem, not some massive city, not some king. He comes in humble to a carpenter born in a manger in the city of Bethlehem. Right? He's saying, I'm going to restore from the line of David the simplicity and the humility of this compared to the palaces and the, the glory that you think you have and you're far from me, the success that you have and you assume it's from me and you're far from me, I'm going to bring back simplicity and provision. The humility of Bethlehem, the humility of Jesus himself. And the simplicity and the humility of the plan of God to rescue us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It was not through military might. It was not through him splitting the sky and making every knee bow at that point, right? It wasn't this grandiose, no one can ignore it plan. It was this humble plan as Jesus walks, Emmanuel, God with us for our good and for his glory, living the life that we were supposed to live and could not live that Amos has revealed, dying the innocent death in our place. And then beating sin and Satan and death and living today. So what he's saying is, look, a reversal is going to take place. Behold, verse 13, the days are coming where the plowman will overtake the reaper. So right, the one who's plowing is overtake the one harvesting. What he's saying is there's going to be abundance. Like you're going to be out in the field trying to finish and we're already doing more. Because you're going to have all that you need. There won't be famine anymore. You will have an abundance. Remember in uh, chapter 4, verse 9. I struck with blight and mildew your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees the locusts devoured, and you didn't return to me. He's saying, remember that? It's not going to be like that anymore. You're going to have abundance. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. You have built houses of hewn stone, and you will not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, and you will not drink their wine. He's saying, because you've done it on the back of others because of injustice. But there's going to be a reversal. You're going to have abundance in verse 13. And listen to verse 14. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they will make gardens and eat their fruit, and they will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted. He's saying, Amos, this end of it isn't the end. There is hope eternal springing forth. So you're going, okay, how? How? Did you notice in chapter 8, verse 9 and 10? On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Talking about right after the earthquake. Church, I want you to listen to this now. From Matthew 27. And on the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We go down to verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake, 
the darkness, right, that we saw in verse 45. And what took place, they were filled with awe and said, this was truly the Son of God. Church, the reason Amos is no longer our story is because the earthquake happens and because the eclipse happens and because the religious system was torn down and the veil was torn and it was in Jesus. Amos is telling us in, in 760 some almost 800 years before this will take place, there's one coming who's going to reverse our fortunes. There's one coming who can stand before God and take His wrath and satisfy His holiness and bring us into the family. Right? So Amos spends nine and a half chapters just beating us to end us to say, but that doesn't have the final say. That doesn't have the final say. God is going to rescue us. And so chapter 9 of Amos is actually um, found in, in Acts 15, right? Where they're talking about, should we continue to let Paul go to the Gentiles? They go back and say, but listen to what Amos said, right? That he's going to all the nations who are called by my name in verse 12. So Amos begins to be the reason that the gospel has, heard, has hit your ears. It's because people looked back and said, God's going to do a thing it's going to be in Jesus, and because of it, it's not just for the Jews anymore that all the nations are going to have access to God because of what Jesus has done with his life, his death, and his resurrection. So Amos is saying, you think it was good now? It's going to get better. We are going to have a king, a priest, a mediator who will stand before the wrath of God, and then he will bring us into the family and call us sons and daughters, those of us who trust and treasure him. This book of doom in the last moment is turned to eternal hope for those who know Jesus. That that earthquake should sound different now, right? That eclipse should look different now because Jesus has rescued us. So here's where we're going to end, and we're going to do this quickly. So what do we do with Amos? What do we do with this? Four quick things. We become a people who lament because church, right now we live in the in-between, we still live in a world of injustice. And so we can call it that and we can cry out to God and say, this is not what you want. This is not what you've intended. And we can share those struggles and injustice with him and then reaffirm our trust in him in the midst of those circumstances, knowing that a day is coming where that will no longer be. We will become a people of hope because we know our circumstances don't get the final say Jesus does. And he has won that victory. We become a people who worship Jesus because he has stood in our place and satisfied the wrath of the Lion of Judah who is roaring against injustice and a lack of righteousness so that now the innocent one who was crushed has made you innocent if you trust Jesus this morning. In church, the last thing is that we become a people who are on mission with urgency because judgment is still coming, and God is returning, and He will split the sky this time. And it will not be a mercy ministry. It will be a ministry of judgment for those who do not yet know, trust, or follow Him. And it will be a rescue mission bringing the rest of us back to Him, where we will be planted in those gardens that will never end, that are of abundance and of Him. So church, we now live in tension, because we are a people who can both lament the world is not as it's meant to be, and there is great injustice, and we're supposed to reflect God's character. But we can also be a people who rejoice because it doesn't have the final say. We have to do both until the moment 
where he wipes all tears from our eyes because everything has been set right again. That's where Scripture ends. That's where Revelation takes us, is that he will wipe the tears of lament, of unrighteousness, of those lack of justice from our eyes because he has brought justice. And Jesus has stood in our place and he has made us family. So we can worship him this morning. Amos ends quickly, has this long buildup, and then it's just done and says, be a people of hope in the midst of your lament while we wait for the return of our King who calls you son and daughter this morning. Let me pray for us.